Hey guys, welcome to Interviews with Pwn. My name is Adam Ponophobia Cogswell. Another episode coming at your ears today. I am joined by Riot Beardy Locks. How you doing, dude? Hey, I'm doing great. How uh, you doing? Hey, I'm awesome. Uh, Beardy Locks and I go back a little bit as well. That seems to be a common theme with this podcast I've been doing. <laughs> I just uh, All the people that I previously worked with or have worked with have all come out to help me out do this again, which has been great. So uh, Beardy Locks and I go way back from when I was first starting Trinity Force, and he helped me put together some of the uh, graphics uh, for the original launch website, Pro Bono, because he liked what we were doing and whatnot, which was really awesome. But, you know, I'm not here to talk about what he's he can do. I'm talking, he's <laughs> here to talk about himself. Uh, and, and, you know, we're going to talk about all, uh, you know, everything that he does and what he is. So, you know, why don't we talk about what you do for Riot and what your background is, and then we'll jump into, you know, how, how you got started in the video games industry at all. Yeah, sure. So currently I'm the visual effects uh, lead, art lead for skins. So skins, as you probably all know, make digital outfits for League Champions. And we make, my department makes the visual effects. So all of the spells, abilities, items, uh, stuff like that. Uh, And I've recently become the lead, which means I manage the team. Uh, and I don't create as many visual effects anymore, but uh, I have been doing that for the past few years. Okay, very cool. So yeah, so you're making all the cool, or were, or are helping out, or however you want to say, uh, all the cool little particles and whatnot that go on with the skins, right? That's right, yeah. All the sparkles, sparkles, magic, fire, lightning, all those sorts of things. Giant anchors for Nautilus. Giant anchors, correct? Yes. Yeah, I haven't I haven't played League in like six months now, so I'm kind of like out okay. of the loop and everything. But I did I did kind of catch the air quotes drama going around. Yeah, that was uh, that was a fun uh, troll that everyone was doing. One of my artists, Sahan, went crazy and made a giant Nautilus anchor. I'm sure you've seen the video, which mm-hmm. was super fun. Yeah, that was I. I don't. I mean, this is this really isn't here or there for this the show, but I don't know why people are just now bitching about that when that's been the case <laughs> for seven years, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, this is actually something I pushed really hard for when I joined about two and a half years ago. So uh, one of the first skins I worked on was Halloween Victor, Death Swan, Death Swan Victor, and when I joined Riot, uh, the accepted knowledge was. If you're making a skin, you don't want to make a hitbox that is pay to lose, right? So Victor E is very misleading in that it is very narrow, whereas actually the explosion area is huge. Right. It's the same case with uh, the Nautilus hook, Blitzcrank E. And the accepted knowledge at the time was that we don't want to make a skin pay to lose, so we're not going to fix the hitbox just for a skin. And at the time, uh, I couldn't change that. But what we did was we we span up like an initiative to update all of the VFX for like old champions. So obviously, doing a full VGU requires a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of effort. And so we only fit in I don't know what it is it four or so a year. Whereas something like VFX, we can update in a much shorter period of time. So like a couple of weeks for a VFX artist doing it in their downtime between other projects. Which means, that, uh, so yeah, I pushed really hard and we set up this initiative and now we've shipped, I think it's like 12 updates or something like that. Uh, Lee Sin, Gragas, Nautilus, 
a uh, bunch of other ones I can't remember right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super happy to have had a part in that. I personally updated, I think, four or five of them. Sahayan, who I mentioned before, he's an amazing artist. He updated like all of the rest, pretty much. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a really fun thing to do. You know, I'm really passionate about league. I'm a big league player myself, and uh, I just want to see all of the hitboxes fixed. And we will get there eventually. I promise everyone. Awesome. There you go. Well, let's let's now that we've uh, you know taken everybody who doesn't play league and, and thrown them in their own little box. Let's let's, let's open that box and let them <laughs> back out. Uh, I want to talk about how you got started in in animation and how you got started in the video game industry. Um, I'm looking at your LinkedIn and, and some of the research I've done previously, but uh, it looks like you started out with Lionhead Studios, right? Like your first full time gig. Yeah, I mean, I'd kind of like to go back a little bit before that, which is like. At school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Okay. I studied uh, in the UK. It's slightly different. We study like three or four subjects from ages 16 to 18. And I studied uh, philosophy, biology, and computing, which were like three really random subjects, not at all related to each other or useful in any one particular field. I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And when I finished school, I just didn't sign up for anything. Um, and then after the summer, like as the term start was approaching, I like freaked out and I was like, I've got to do something. And I applied at my local college to study a computer aided design course. It was called like computer aided design, 3D modeling and animation, which at that time, which is now like 10 years ago was a lot more kind of technical based. They had like uh, a semester of doing like product design and architecture and uh, interior design and stuff like that. And I studied that course for two years. Then I went on uh, and I mainly picked that because I knew I loved video games. I knew I loved animation. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I kind of wanted this like generic course to help me open my options up really. Uh, after I finished that, I went and did an actual animation course at another university, like a focus course, which did make me spend a lot of time at university. Um, but as part of that, I did an internship. And I was really fortunate to go to Lionhead, which for me, like uh, as a young gamer, was like a dream come true. Like I'd played Fable. Uh, they used to be Bullfrog. And I, in my youth, like played Theme Hospital and all their kind of classics. So like going there was a really, really awesome and exciting experience for me. Um, and I do, if people like are interested in games or like animation, like I highly, highly recommend doing an internship. So for me, it was taking a year out from my course. So I did like the second year, did a year in uh, internship. And I just think it's a really good opportunity. Firstly, it gives you an in to the industry and you get to know loads of people and who can like help you, can give you leads. And it's just an awesome experience as well to like be in a games company uh, and get to see things coming on uh, in real time. So I worked on a game called Milo and Kate. Uh, probably people don't remember it. They might remember that at E3, I don't know, uh, 
2011, 2012 or something, Peter Molyneux stood on stage with the Connect. 2009. 2009. Oh, man, I'm old now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he stood on stage with the Connect, and he said, "Oh, this is a, it's a virtual living AI child in the oh, Xbox." Yeah. Um, so I was working on on that game. Uh, that had a somewhat difficult production, but it was really fun. We we did some cool stuff. Unfortunately, the game got cancelled, and. Uh, it got cancelled right after I went back to university, so I felt really bad for everyone at the studio who got let go. But during that time, it was a, a really awesome experience. And again, it was like I've taken a kind of winding journey from philosophy to animation uh, and then into visual effects, which I'll come on to later. is like a very different field. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I was doing animation support kind of things so like having done computing i had quite a technical background um of like coding uh and when you're doing animation there's like three there's three kind of distinct areas right there's animation which is physically animating rigs to make them move and come to life and then there's something called tech art which is obviously technical art, um, which is like rigging where you put a skeleton inside a character and make it uh, able to be moved by an animator, as well as like tools creation and just like hooking everything up in-game in an editor. Um, And then visual effects is kind of a separate thing. It's your sparkles, your lightning, your fire, your smoke. Um, I kind of, because I had a technical background, I kind of, lent more into the tech art side while I was doing animation at Lionhead. Um, And I never really animated that much while I was there. Um, But I think it helped me in good stead because uh, after I left Lionhead and then I went and finished my uh, last year of university and I had my animation I could show you, but uh, I don't really want to show everyone. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, that's uh, that's fine. People, you know, and and people can get an idea where you're at now. They don't necessarily need to know where you came from, right? Um, because you're, you're showing, you've obviously shown a lot of prowess going to Riot Games and showing what people can do. And if people have, you know, if, if they have questions, they can always ask. Hey, what skins? You know, you've mentioned one. What skins you work on? Mm-hmm. How does that work? But um, can I take a step back here for real quick? Yeah, and, please. And with the Milo and Kate thing, because. Uh, I was in heavy esports journalism, at, or it's not esports, excuse me, video game journalism at that time. Um, and I remember watching this and reading about that. Now, when you're working on something like that, I know you're just doing the visual effects or whatever it may be. Um, excuse my terminology, it's poor. Um, but, it, you know, when you guys are playing games like this, like this Milo and Kate or, or the other one that I, we had talked about, what was it, Riggs? Yeah, and, Riggs. Uh, is there a lot of, like... I guess my question is, do video game developers know when they're making... I don't want to say it's a poor product because it's not what it is, but I think you understand where I'm going, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it's not a poor product. Like, it could be a lot of fun, but obviously it may not be the thing that every, that's going to, like, blow everybody away. Yeah, so a really interesting thing in game development... Um, so if I fast forward a bit, when I was working at Guerrilla Games, we were working on Killzone Games, and our sister studio 
in Amsterdam was working on Horizon Zero Dawn. Do you know this one? Like the prehistoric oh, yeah. future robot game. I remember seeing a demo of their game and thinking, eh, it's kind of okay. You know, uh, it's got a long way to go. And this was like six months before launch. Um, the next time I saw that was when it launched. And that game blew me away, right? It was phenomenally good. I, I honestly think like Horizon Zero Dawn is one of the best games of the past like five years. And the thing with video games is everything is up in the air until the last minute. Everything is up in the air until that last bit of crunch comes in hmm. and it all comes together or it all doesn't quite come together, you know? And so it's it like people know when what they're working on. Like if there's a very troubled development, people kind of know where it's going to go, right? But sure. there's also always the chance that it all comes together and pulls through at the last minute. Um, with Milo and Kate, I mean... I don't really want to like bash on. No, I'm not asking you to. I'm just asking you as something like you play it. You kind of go, well, I mean, people might like this or, you know, I'm glad that I got to do this because it makes it look good on my resume. But and I'm not it's hard to ask this without you having worked on a game that was a total flop. Right. Or, Or like. I mean, (laughs) well, okay. Uh, I I think my question generally goes towards somebody who played like so, like Duke Nukem Forever. You know the game's going to be garbage, right? right? And you play it, and you have to do all this work for it, and you know you're getting paid to make something that's garbage. But you know, and I've always wanted to know how it feels inside the industry when you know you're making something that's not going to be perceived very well. Yeah, I mean that at the time. uh I'm sure people have gone on record about this, but like Peter Molyneux has a reputation, right? Yes. Of um, building things up to be greater than they are, of telling you that he's going to reinvent the wheel and deliver the world. And what you actually get is a relatively enjoyable, mediocre experience, right? And I, I certainly think that was the case with Milo and Kate was like, we were making a nice, fun, family-friendly story with some interesting interactive elements. And Peter was promising uh, a a next-generation AI virtual child who would read your facial expressions and interact with you. And I mean, anyone at the time who had any, like, kind of knowledge of the games industry knew that that wasn't really possible. You know, like, that was nonsense. And yeah, I, I think at the time everyone knew that it wasn't at the very least going to be what Peter said, but like going on to like the next company I worked at, mm-hmm. absolutely. When you, uh, so I worked on a game for one year and five months, like uh, seventeen months basically, and then that game got cancelled. And I think at the time we knew what we had tried to take on. We'd bitten off more than we could chew, but it is just soul crushing, right? Is like for the first three years of my career. The things I worked on never got released. I like I can't even show a showreel of the stuff that I worked on there because it's <laughs> like it's hidden behind an NDA, and it's just very difficult to like know that basically three years of your life you spent working towards something that was for naught. It was all just thrown away. Yeah. Um, see, there you go. Now you're answering my question. That's kind of, see, I knew we would get there. I just couldn't figure yeah. out how to wrap it right without <laughs> sounding like I was being offensive. 
yeah it's it's just yeah like this is a games industry though really honestly like i am so fortunate now to have worked at like sony on some really awesome products and now to work at riot which is like my absolute dream job i i really love it i love league and i love being here and i love interacting with players and stuff but like the games industry is hard it's really tough and especially your first few jobs unless you are like I don't know, unless you're one of the Riot art interns who are, like, so good it blows my mind. But, you know, we're drawing from, like, the best talent all the way around the world. If you're like me, who didn't know what he wanted to do and, like, was trying to work hard and make his way into the industry any way he can, you're probably going to work on some uh, some damp squibs on your way, you know? Gotcha. Yeah, and it makes sense. Everybody, you know, you can't... Yeah, you, you, you can't always be working on the bangers, right? No. Uh, but that's okay. That That's what's... It, it's kind of like the same thing I'm doing here in the tech industry, uh, you know, with my real job or my day job, is that I, I can't come in every day and start redeveloping the wheel. Some days I have to, you know, push the wheel forward and just kind of make the, you know, make the money, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah, so you worked on... You did work on Milo... Excuse me, Milo and Kate. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, how, how did... I, I guess I have to take a step back and ask, did you pick up the Lionhead Studios one as like that somebody was my, who you uh, knew internship. or that, that was your internship that uh, yeah. turned into so, a full job, right? Yeah, like that was, I am very fortunate for that because like my tutor at the university knew someone at the company and so they, apparently they only interviewed me. So I don't know whether that was me being so good that I blew them <laughs> away or they just hadn't got around to interviewing anyone else. But uh, yeah, I, I got the position there. And like, that's why I think that, so realistically, if you're like a, a student just finishing high school or whatever, and you don't really know what you want to do, like obviously uh, I did like four years studying. That sat on me with a lot of debt, a lot of debt by UK standards, not a lot of debt by US standards, which is like crazy. But right. um, studying does give you debt. It gives you a fun experience of, of going to university and going for drinks with the lads and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's like it gives you connections and it, it helps you focus and it gives you a structure to your learning. Now, all that said, like you don't need a degree to get a job at most games companies, like uh, in, in art terms. Like they don't really care if you have a degree. They care if you're a really good artist. They want to see a really strong portfolio, a short strong portfolio of just your few best pieces to show that you can make really high quality art. And if that means that you spend a year studying and you don't go to university or whatever, you could get into the industry with that portfolio. It does require you to be very self-driven. It does require you to be like very go-getter and it does require you to like make your own connections. Now I will put one like um, conditional out on that, which is like when I wanted to come to America to work at Riot, I had to prove that I was uh, a like it's almost impossible to get a visa to America if you don't have uh, a university degree, and b for me to get a visa straight away, I had to prove that I had worked on um, financial or critical successes. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, you you don't need to study to get into the games industry as an artist, but having a degree can really help you to free you up to travel around the world if that's something you're interested in gotcha oh okay um 
it's interesting with the degree thing because again I work in tech and you can actually make it quite a quite a ways without a degree in tech but there just seems to be that wall that you eventually hit and I'm curious if other industries kind of uh, you know have yeah. the same thing right like you I I can make it and I can make it really far and I have made it really far but there's just I'm I'm I personally I'm coming along that wall that says hey you need to get a bachelor's degree or you're not really going right. much further yeah I think that. Whilst everything I say is true about art, if you want to be an engineer or a coder, it's, I think it's a lot more difficult to prove yourself without a degree. But I don't know. I, it's not my specialism. It's not sure. my area of expertise, so I can't really talk about it. Well, excuse me. Uh, it's probably uh, probably just best to fall back on being a tattoo artist, right? Just take your art, <laughs> put, put it more fully. Hey, man, they make a lot of money. Really good tattoo artists. Well, that's the thing. Really good tattoo artists, right? Just like really good visual artists, I'm sure, make a lot of money as well. Um, yeah. But let's talk about what how you moved on from Lionhead and where you went from there. Uh, yeah. I, I'm really interested talking about your time at Sony. Sure. So, like, uh, the interesting switch for me was that, like, Obviously, I did my animation degree. Uh, I finished that, and I wanted to get... I thought I wanted to get a job in animation. Um, I didn't really know entirely the difference between tech art, animation, visual effects, and stuff like that. I knew I wanted to work in the games industry, and uh, a nearby games company was offering a position in visual effects. They weren't offering any in animation. And I thought it'd be a really good opportunity for me to get in there. So even though I knew, like almost nothing about visual effects i was like yeah sure let's go for it and i i joined that company now unfortunately again this this is what i'm talking about the flops like this was the one that flopped okay. but uh what was really good for me was even though i wasted a year and a half of my life i did learn a lot about visual effects i learned a lot about unreal which is like a common editor that you use to make video games and i learned about visual effects so when i finished with that job and unfortunately they closed a the project i then started looking for another one and that's where i found um sony so again uh, like an interesting thing is the uk is a relatively small country and all of the game studios are kind of clumped up in a few areas obviously london is one of them then guildford and cambridge has a few themselves and I went to Sony in Guildford, and I started working on Killzone, uh, not Shadowfall, Killzone Mercenary, which was on the PS Vita. Uh, have you heard of it? The PS Vita? Oh, yeah. I've heard of it. Or, or, or Killzone Mercenary? Uh, I mean, I've heard of Killzone, but I don't think I okay. know. Yeah, that's fine. But it's, like, obviously, for, for the listeners, it's British space Nazis... Uh, in space and you fight them and you're awesome us marine or something and it was really cool uh we were making a first person shooter for a handheld which was a really interesting challenge especially for me like for visual effects just due to the way that mobile hardware works um the nature of the processes that go on mobile hardware like your phone or the ps vita are ones that don't handle lots of layers of transparency well. So if you want to have a room full of fire and smoke and you want to be able to see partially through the fire and smoke, that's very bad for, for performance. So you get really poor frame rates. So from a visual effects standpoint, it was a very technically challenging space to be working in because I was taking resources from um, 
the Killzone game on PlayStation 3, and where they might have like 3,000 sparks to work with, I have to make an effect that looks just as good, but with, say, 100 sparks, right? And that nature of that challenge of making something look good for less is a really interesting space to work in. I can, I can um, imagine. And, you know, I, I think working in the confines, um, like you said, it definitely helps you grow as an artist or grow as a technician, right? Or engineer, I absolutely. guess is the word. Yeah. And, like, uh, it was interesting as well because, like, this is very realistic visual effects. So you're rendering stuff like uh, you create a simulation of an explosion in a program called Maya. You render it out to basically like a, a movie or a GIF. And then you put that GIF into your game as a giant smoke plume or something like that. Um, so it's all very much realistic effects. And a lot like movie visual effects are, you're trying to push for as realistic as you can to get it in your game. Uh, and that's in hugely stark contrast to the stuff I work on now on League, which is very stylized painterly effects where you're hand drawing a lot of stuff. Um, but it's been really interesting for me to work in like those two extremes. Um, and it's just like the nature of the work on challenges like Killzone, because uh, we went on to work on the PS4 game. And like you can see in my like 2017 showreel, we like an awesome technical challenge for us to like work between departments. So like work between the visual effects, tech art, animation departments is like uh, we had this giant dam that you could open and it would flood the entirety of the level with a giant tidal wave that would kill anyone in it. And it's like a multiplayer level so people can trigger that. So like it's this awesome mixture between like gameplay, animation, tech art, visual effects to make this huge set piece that just really shocks and stuns people is just a really cool problem to solve. Huh. I'm just trying to wrap my head around that as somebody who's never worked on that. I can only imagine what it's like to try to put all these little particles together to make, you know, to make something so awesome in a game or, or, or you know, what have yeah. you. It's like, and I think we even tried a few different methods of like, basically in the end we created a simulation of water falling down a waterfall and then sliding along a canal. And you can do all these cool sorts of things. Like I'm sure you've seen like movies and TV and stuff where they simulate giant oceans. And they just show you like a cube of it. The challenge for video games is basically we did that initially. And then we realized that there's no way this would fit in the performance budget. Uh, an interesting like little bit of information I like to say is like, um, each frame of, and this is old, this is like Iron Man 1, each frame, so there are 30 frames in a second to make a continual live piece of footage, right? Each 30th of a second would take, say, eight hours to render for uh, Iron Man 1. For a video game where you want to have it uh, in 60 frames a second, you have 0.016 seconds to render a frame right mm -hmm. that's for you to render at real time so the challenge is like how can we create something that looks like cinematic quality whilst runs at real time uh i i did a university talk on that at one point uh which was cool as well but yeah that that's really cool that's like the it, i watch i'm sure we all do a lot of like captain disillusion right talking about mm -hmm. uh 
and I'm sure you're familiar with him and his work on YouTube. Yeah, but uh, he's fun. Yeah, he's a lot of fun, and and you know I've heard his things talking about frame rates and whatnot, or, or you know how all that works, and so it's really interesting. It, at some point, you lose me because <laughs> it just it just gets too much. I'm like I I can't, I can't process this. I can't process how something is uh you know moving so quickly or how we're processing it. So, but mm-hmm. but speaking of that, how what's it been like transitioning into game design now that a lot you know, we have higher refresh rate monitors or you know, now that these you know, like a computer system, right? Like that can uh-huh. that can really push the like cinematic quality stuff. Yeah, so I mean, the thing is, it's always uh, a constant battle between the quality of the visuals and the speed of the frame rate. And generally, for consoles still, most developers decide that 30 FPS is kind of the way to go. And uh, so when the PS Pro release, PS4 Pro, generally developers got to choose. So Sony would come to you and say, hey, we have this hardware, it's... I don't know the numbers, but say 30% faster processor. Well, that's a good chunk faster, but that's not enough faster to render everything in 4K. So Sony would generally come to you and be like, what would you like to do? You could increase frame rate or you could increase resolution. Um, so an interesting challenge, like after we worked on Killzone, we went on to work on Briggs, which is a virtual reality game. and Virtual reality has another really unique challenge, and this is why the job before was great for me because it set me up to work within tight constraints. In virtual reality, you have to render at minimum 60 frames a second. If you render any less than 60 frames a second, it will make your players sick. Uh, It's something to do with, uh, it gets kind of technical, but basically like it's the same thing as reading in a car and getting travel sick. Your eyes are looking down at the screen, but your ears and your sense of balance are telling you that you're moving. Mm-hmm. So like your eyes and your brain uh, your have different feelings, and that's what makes you travel sick, basically. And if you don't render uh, a virtual reality game in at least 60 frames a second, then people will end up feeling sick. So yeah, that doesn't really answer your question. No, a little bit of a tangent. It it does. It's fine. And I I like this talk about the VR stuff. It's actually really, really interesting. I I think we kind of hit the, we've already gone past the, how did you get in the game industry? Yours was, Mm -hmm. I went to school, had an internship, you know, applied, got, you know, got added. Now it's fun to talk about. Now we've moved on. Let's talk about some of the VR stuff and whatnot, because uh, I have an Oculus. If Mm -hmm. I, if I play a game, let's say uh, sword and sorcery and Uh, I'm I when I had played VR, I'm stumbling because I'm trying to think how to put this. When I first played VR, I can play just about any VR game that makes me teleport around, no problem. Mm-hmm. I don't get sick. But and I always said I want to be, play a VR game where I move with the joystick, right? Yeah. But suddenly I do get sick, and I always just assumed it was because not because the game is rendered improperly or that, but because I'm just getting older. And my, okay. you know, my, 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 like my brain can't process it as well, but yeah, I get like sword and sorcery. I get super sick when I play that and it's exactly what I wanted in a VR game. And, right. and you know, that's just that, that kind of stuff is really interesting to me because I want to play more VR games, but I can't because I get sick. So what I would say to that is, uh, again, an interesting challenge when, we're developing a VR game, obviously every single person has a VR headset on their desk. And every single person has to use VR all day long, basically, because you might make something that looks really good on the screen, 
and then you put the headset on and you look at it and you're like oh this looks awful like either the resolution is weird or just the the field of view on the camera makes something feel very different in vr than it would when you're developing it on your computer and again from like visual effects that thing i told you about rendering out a gif of an explosion mm -hmm. that explosion might look really really flat when it's in game because it's not 3d and you have like a 3d camera basically because your eyes are a 3d camera okay um what i would say is that even the people who were most sensitive eventually over time they got uh stronger stomachs vr stomachs uh i don't think anyone's really going to run into this because it's a very extreme situation but i do wonder like i think it's an interesting tidbit about the future you know how long until people genuinely live in vr mm. a lot more regularly um but certainly sickness in our game was a huge challenge um we the the accepted knowledge when we were developing rigs which is uh a first person shooter basically where you're piloting a big mech one of the challenges is that the accepted knowledge in vr at that time was that you do teleport that you don't let people move around that you don't let people uh, translate either like walking around or going up or down and we really did want to have a game that was fast paced free movement uh unfortunately the initial tests did reveal that people tended to get a little bit uh sick doing that yeah. so <laughs> yeah, kind of like me in, in sword sorcery or blade yeah. and sorcery whatever it's called but so yeah. like one of the best things you can do for that is um you basically build a cockpit you give people a fixed frame of reference that let them know that the world is moving around them as opposed to them moving through the world um one of my favorite vr games is elite dangerous have you played that one? Oh yeah i own it yeah, like the first time I've got the whole flight stick and everything, and the first time like a ship flew over my head and I looked up and I went, oh, I'm in the game. That was a super awesome moment for me. But yeah, I don't know. I think like VR is really interesting, but I think it's still going to be a good few years before it really takes off because the two that's biggest challenges. Said, like, that's what we said like four or five years ago. I, that is true. That is really true. I, I don't know that it'll ever take off in the way that console games have because... I don't think it will. Like, personally, I, I can't sit... It's not even the sickness thing. Like, I like playing in VR and whatnot, but I have a bunch of little problems with it. One, I don't like being stuck in a little headset forever. I kind of mm. like knowing what's going on around me. Yeah. Because, you know, it's very easy to get... I don't want to say get lost in the headset, but it's, you know, not, mm. not have any perception of what's going on around you. Um, and secondly... The whole my my you get really sweaty, especially if you start moving around a lot. You know, in case you want yeah. to play that fast paced thing, and like the headset gets all foggy and whatnot. And it just, eh, it's just not for me. I, I the thing for me as well is like, who has a house where they can dedicate like a whole ten foot by ten foot room to be <laughs> empty with just a VR headset in it and some base stations? You know. Yeah, I I actually looked. So I have a ten foot by ten foot room that I could set my VR up in. I think the only nice. thing in a way is a coffee table. I just have to move that. Uh, uh -huh. And the current room I'm in is like five. I think my play area is like five by seven. So it's pretty small for mm -hmm. VR. And it does get in the way. Like 10 by 10 is like the perfect thing. But yeah, with the with the VR, right, with the VR. But honestly, a lot of that's changing now. You are right. The VR, uh, the Oculus Quest, I believe is the new one. The, the wireless one. The, wireless, the inside out tracking one. 
I, if that's it, yeah. The, the, yeah, the, like the they don't need the little base station things. Right, yeah. So that that's helping a lot, right? Like, because now you can find that 10 by 10 area. You don't need your computer and all that anymore. Yeah, I think, like, the thing for me is just... Um, this problem is really up against, like, the forefront of technology. It's a bit like that thing you're talking about with better processors. The problem is, like, I think they've actually patented... Viva painted in a new wireless technology, so you don't even have to have the computer on your head but it's mm. just like the latency between that thing i said about having to have 60 frames a second the latency as soon as you have to transmit that without a wire from a pc to a headset gets in the way of that 60 frames a second um and then the other thing is just like the resolution on the panels you get that kind of screen door effect it's called where you see the individual pixels and i think like all those things will disappear in time but none of it matters unless someone comes up with some killer game you know like something that's really nailed it but that's what i think is really interesting like it's like the birth of cinema right we're in the 1920s in hollywood sure. but for vr it's like no one knows the rules you could make the rules you could find out what they are like video games have had 40 years for people to figure out what works and what doesn't and everything that comes out builds on top of the thing before it. But with VR, like you're in this new, unknown, unexplored area, and I think that's really exciting. It is really exciting, and you know, now that we're talking about VR, I'm just gonna keep going with this because it's fun. Um, sure. It's uh, I I, th- I do think it's really exciting, and I have a lot of fun with it. Um, but like you said, it's kind of the wild, wild west because there's not enough people with VR headsets. There's not enough people playing the games. There's not enough people out there reviewing the games. Mm-hmm. to accurately judge what is going on because i can and also the the barrier to entry is so high it's not even just having an extra 300 dollars to drop on a good headset it's that each game is 40 bucks mm-hmm. right like it's hard to come up with like a 10 a 5 10 15 20 dollar game unless it's on sale mm-hmm. and those only happen once or twice a year and all of those things combined mean that uh, from a game developer perspective there's a lot less profit to be had right right it's like you don't want to drop 300 million on a game for a vr system when you know that there's only like maximum uh say 5 million people out there who could buy it because you'd have to end up having literally every single person <laughs> with a headset buy it to make your money back you know yeah and that's obviously not happening yeah exactly well that's it it's been it's been really interesting i know that you have to leave here soon right uh, uh, that's okay yeah if i i if i can talk about like how i get into riot yeah, that and like it, a good, like, that's segment. what I was going to ask you. I, th- I, I I said, I know you have to leave soon, but I think we have at least one other thing to talk about. And I do want to talk about you getting into Riot and transitioning from Sony to Riot. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I finished working at Sony. We finished working on rigs. And I went to a London studio uh, working in very central Piccadilly Circus, which was pretty cool. And again, we were working on a VR game, which was called... Blood and Truth. Now that actually came out recently and uh, won VR Game of the Year or something, which was fantastic, although I only worked on it for like three months. Because during that time, I applied to Riot. Uh, and Riot was something I'd always, always wanted to work at uh, ever since like the game came out. Obviously, as a huge League fan. And I used to read Surrender at 20 every single day you know i was obsessed with it i used to listen to the trinity force podcast which is of course how i came into contact with you Mm -hmm. and like i really loved the sense of community that exists around league and the the chance for almost unlimited mastery 
And I think I was a little bit old to ever become an esports athlete, and I don't think that I would have wanted that life for myself. <laughs> um, it was always like a little dream in the back of my mind, but I think like when it was becoming serious, I was about 25 or something, so already at the upper end of the age limit. Uh, either way, I like I loved on Surrender at 20 how rioters were basically allowed to have a one-on-one -on -one direct relationship with their players and having worked for sony like sony is a really awesome studio really awesome publisher but anytime we wanted to interact directly with the players we were basically asked to refer them to our like pr branch and that really sucks it's really difficult when a player is like right there trying to talk to you and you're like that's a great question if you could refer that to our pr department and they'll get back to you within two weeks you're like and you know this sucks and i love that writers were not only allowed but encouraged to seek out players communicate directly with them um that was something that i really loved about riot so i applied i had to do an art test uh which is in my showreel you can see that um it's basically for visual effects, it was make a karma cue and make a karma cue in a different skin, hmm. um, which is a fun, interesting challenge for me, especially as I was transitioning from doing realistic style effects to this kind of like painterly stylized stuff. Um, so I did that and then I went for an interview and uh, <laughs> I did not do very well on my interview, oh. if I'm honest. Uh, Every interview I ever had at a games company in England is like, you walk in there, you're like, all right. They're like, all right. You're like, uh, so you worked in games then? You're like, yeah. They're like, what you worked on? Oh, this and that. And they're like, great. You fancy a pint? We'll go chat about it. You're like, fantastic, mate. Love it. American interviews are very, very different from that, right? <laughs> like, I walked in there and I was like, yeah, nice. I'll hang around. I'll chat to people. And uh we've recently changed the interview structure to eliminate some of these problems at riot this is my riot lead hat on but um i went in there for seven hours of interviews wow each hour with a different one or two people and uh for me like the american style interview where someone says tell me your greatest weakness that was completely novel i was in no way prepared for that now that's definitely 100% on me. You know, like I sure. should have researched that better and prepared more for that experience. Um, and I, I, I think I messed up by being a bit honest and uh, uh, yeah. direct with some of the stuff I said. Um, I subsequently learned how to do that better. But either way, I did get hired in the end, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, so to get into Riot, I applied, did not test, did an interview. Um, and then the biggest roadblock was just waiting for my visa. Like I had to wait six months uh, from start to end through the process. Um, and then I relocated here to LA, which was really fun, really cool. Um, crazy, insane property prices, but... Uh, I was gonna say it's fun until you realize how expensive LA really is, and yeah. and how much America has a problem yeah. in some areas. <laughs> Absolutely, but like the overall experience, you know, like 
one of the awesome things about working in the games industry is if you have that dream of traveling the world, of going to like some country, the other side of the world, like it's possible, you know? And in fact, there's a lot of uh, jobs can be had in like uh, Asia, places like that, where they open uh, outsource studios, where basically you hire a studio in a country where basically, obviously you, you understand the source of point of outsource it's kind of cheap labor in another country that's putting it very simply um but like you have places in like eastern europe or asia and like a lot of those places need uh outsource managers and stuff like that as well um that's not to belittle any of the talent of those artists i mean like man some of them are phenomenally talented mm -hmm. but like the point is you know you can travel the world be it america canada loads of games companies up in toronto or like asia and it's like it, it's just an awesome uh thing if you have that dream that you can achieve it basically i mean you, you did it <laughs> yeah and for me it's like i i i've been at riot two and a half years now uh and i've really enjoyed it like i really love it here i i see myself wanting to be here for a good while longer um at least like i don't know if i'll eventually get bored of being on league and like i'm super happy we now have another game out and some other ones announced mm -hmm. uh maybe one day i'll get to work on those as like a kind of way to freshen it up but right now i really love like my job here at riot and i'm really happy with like the journey i took to get to this place and it is really humbling being at work being surrounded by basically some of the world's greatest artists, some of the world's greatest coders, engineers, producers, stuff like that. And, you know, we've had some of our difficulties in recent times. I don't really want to go into them, but like, I will say that more than any other company I've ever worked at, Riot is one that seeks to like constantly improve uh, and fix all of their problems. And they're just like so open and honest about doing that. Um, and yeah, it, I love working there. I'm super happy. Awesome. Well, I'm going to, I guess we're going to wrap it up here because yeah, we, cool. we, we've, we've talked about your journey and, and where you need to go and what other people can do. People can do, excuse me. Uh, if someone needs to get a hold of you, they can find you on Twitter, correct? That's right. Uh, B-E-A-R, wait, I misspelled it. Beardy Locks. <laughs> I'm sure you'll link it somewhere. Beard Eye Locks. That's all I need to know. Beard Eye Locks on Twitter. Awesome. And well, you can also see my art station and showreels and stuff that I talked about uh, while we we're on. Yeah, go interact. He has. I see, you know, he's out there. He, he talks quite a bit, posts stuff about League of Legends. So if you're really into that game or are interested in any artwork, I'm sure Beardy Locks can help you out from there. Um, but uh, Beardy, that this has been great. Awesome, dude. I appreciate you coming on and talking to me. Uh, and and I, I don't know. I, I guess we leave it right there. Thanks very much, Pone. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Guys, thanks so much for listening to this interview podcast. We'll be back next time with another interview in your ears. Uh, just listen to the outro. I'll tell you everything you know. See ya. Thanks for listening to my new interview series brought to you by the Trinity Force Network. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash T-Force Network. If you have a question or a comment, you can drop me a line at adamc at trinityforcepodcast.com. For everything else, please check me out on trinityforcenetwork.com or subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy all the shows that the Trinity Force Network has to offer.